You're listening to the Fitness and Wellness Class, powered by NASM. NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere, anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org connected or call one 800 460 6276. So in this presentation, I'm going to be talking about performance-focused nutrition for competitive athletes. So just quickly, a little bit about me. My name is Dr. Laurent Bannock, and I am the founder and CEO of the Institute Performance Nutrition, which is based in London. And um, by way of background, uh, beyond my role as the director of the IOPN, I've got nearly 30 years of experience working in private practice, um, primarily sport and exercise nutrition practice and as an exercise physiologist. Uh, but a lot of my work has been with elite athletes, sports teams, soccer teams, uh, various Olympics. Um, and also uh, in this picture here, you can see where I was a performance nutritionist for uh, a national team at the FIFA World Cup, 2018 World Cup. So it's been a very interesting career to this, uh, to this date. And my uh, professional doctorate was in sport and exercise nutrition. And um, like some of you in the audience, I actually got one of my master's degrees in exercise science and health promotion from California University in Pennsylvania, and actually that came off the back of um, many years ago now when I did the NASM Certified Personal Trainer Certification, which um, started off much of my, my career. So it's been an honor to be invited to speak to you all today, uh, particularly with my historical links to the NASM. Um, I'm a registered sport and exercise nutritionist, though, and my work whether it's in practice or in, in research, uh, revolves in pretty much anything you can think of that relates to sport and exercise nutrition and performance and recovery and so on and so forth. And uh, if I, I would say probably the most important thing about me is I'm always learning. Just like you guys, you're listening to a lecture, you're listening to many um, speakers uh, speak in this virtual conference, um, but always learning. It's, it's a great thing to do. So in today's session, um, we're going to split this into three areas. Uh, I'm going to give you a, a brief introduction to performance nutrition to begin with. And then I'm going to focus on an overview of some key science to practice considerations for performance nutritionists. And then finally, we're going to we're going to get into this, um, into what a performance nutritionist really does by looking at an applied performance nutrition science to practice case study, which we're going to look at a, an elite soccer player scenario. Now, what you've got to bear in mind, this is a massive topic, a massive area, takes years to learn 
um, just parts um, of this field. So in the next hour or so, um, it is not possible to cover the entire topic. But what I hope we do is manage to um, pique your interest in, in this exciting area. And uh, hopefully you'll take away some information that you can use to the benefit of yourself and to your, to your clients, your athletes. So performance nutrition is a very, very exciting area to be in. Uh, sport and exercise nutrition is also known as, or sport nutrition. In the last 20 years or so, this area has exploded in terms of, of research. Uh, the knowledge that we now have goes far beyond what was historically things like calories and carbohydrate loading um, and uh, basic hydration and weight maintenance strategies, which pretty much summed up uh, sport and exercise nutrition. Now it is vast. And as you can see in, in one of my favorite charts here in front of us, the different areas that relate to training adaptations, performance, uh, and health. And these are just some of the key areas that the evidence um, is perhaps stronger on, but there's some emerging areas. And over the years, there will be continued uh, growth and development in this explosion in sport and exercise nutrition. But we should always remember that health is our number one priority. And when we talk about sport and exercise nutrition, particularly when we're looking at it from the perspective of um, the performance nutrition, the performance focused approach to sport and exercise nutrition and um, competitive athletes, there is always going to be a bigger picture because we're not just looking at things like energy balance or trying to gain muscle. We're trying to look at the, the integration, if you like, of these different parts of, of this puzzle, which is their, their nutritional needs, such as their daily diet, supplements, um, energy balance or energy availability, uh, yes, body composition, but also things like personal preference, their basic likes, dislikes, uh, could be anything from re religious to medical reasons. We are, of course, interested in um, their fitness and performance. And beyond sort of your general population approach to, to sports nutrition, when we're in performance nutrition, we're always considering their fitness and performance needs. They are in a constant state of strength and conditioning. Their exercise programming on a day-to-day -day and a weekly basis is constantly changing. So the variety is, is enormous. They have uh, skills training. They have all kinds of strategies and coaching goals that we need to bear in mind. And they may be competing uh, once every uh, couple of months, or they might be competing once a week or multiple times per week, uh, as you often see in team sports. So there's a great deal to consider there. We also need to keep them healthy. And in some situations, we're um, trying to help support their recovery, uh, get them over an illness or an injury, which is a common scenario with athletes, sadly, but it happens. And nutrition can play a powerful role in helping the body heal itself or preventing um, colds and flus and, and such like. So the sweet spot is very much the consideration of all of these factors combined together. And that is what we would consider as the optimal care approach to our, our nutrition considerations for our athletes. But what we've got to remember is as much as we're obsessed uh, by sport and exercise nutrition, um, speaking for myself, obviously, but also many of us that get into sport and exercise nutrition, we can we can find ourselves totally absorbed by all this 
science and all this information and knowledge because it is very interesting. Um, but it is only part of the bigger picture. And particularly with performance-focused um, athletes, um, there is many things that they need to consider, as I've already indicated. And sometimes we need to recognize where nutrition is not so important because they have so many other things they need to, to factor on. So knowledge in all of these areas is certainly important. Now, when you're working with athletes, um, commonly what happens is there tends to be a flip in um, the approaches that certain people will take as it relates to the priorities um, for the athlete's nutrition. Now, the common approach will look at things like uh, supplements, um, things like timing or, or specific nutrients like protein or carbohydrate. Um, and the last thing that they will probably deal with is total sort of energy balance or energy availability factors, which I'll explain later, um, or the overall diet quality might be something that is maybe a, a sort of the last thing, the distant consideration. Whereas um, what the evidence tells us that it is actually the other way around. It is a food first approach that we should take in our work with our athletes. And um, we can expand upon this in this performance nutrition hierarchy of a priority diagram that you see in front of you, where we have two approaches to this concept. We have the popular approach, which um, I would describe as a top-down strategy, where, um, as the previous slide had indicated, the focus is um, things like supplements, uh, then timing, um, and then perhaps the type, and then maybe the total. Whereas the evidence-based approach, the bottom-up strategy, absolutely will focus on the basics as a priority and then work their way up this concept, which we will refer to as total type and timing, and then ultimately um, supplements. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, just lost my uh, clicker, folks. Just bear with me. I've got it back. This is real, obviously. Um, so <coughs> let's get into uh, this overview that I've referred to, the science to practice considerations for performance nutritionists. Now, these are important areas that I feel are of interest to those of you that are looking to be sport and exercise nutritionists or performance nutrition coaches uh, in some form or another. So we're not just um, necessarily working with teams. If you're focused on team sports, which is one area that your work as a performance nutritionist or a performance coach might work is very much in teams. But what we have to remember is that we're still working with individuals. Um, but we may learn our information in the classroom, in the lecture rooms, um, virtual conferences, if you like, um, as well. But that's not where we practice. That's, that's where we learn information that relates to the practice of sport and exercise nutrition, but that is not where we actually apply this knowledge. We also obtain information from the laboratory, or in fact, um, you might spend some of your education uh, doing research within a laboratory if you're doing research degrees. But the laboratory is not where we practice sport and exercise nutrition. Where we practice sport and exercise nutrition is in the real world. And by the real world, 
I'm talking about that crazy, chaotic place that varies from day to day. And uh, when we talk about this in practice theory, we refer to this as the day-to-day -day trenches of daily practice. And in professional practice, theory is rarely clearly articulated. What you see um, in the textbooks, what you hear in the academic lectures, what you've read in your research papers is not exactly as it is in the real world. So we've used this word practice. And what practice actually means is the actual application or use of an idea, belief or method, as opposed to theories that relate to it. And the reason why this is important is because when you're a practitioner or a nutrition coach, what you're aiming to do is to translate this knowledge, this information into success. And we need to be mindful that there is a gap between this knowledge and success. There is a gap between science and practice in the same way that there is a gap between knowing about something and actually doing it. And ultimately, there is a gap between an idea or a plan, a theoretical idea that you come up with, albeit based on amazing knowledge, but the gap still exists between that potentially and actually achieving success. Successful outcomes are not necessarily based on you having a great idea or a plan because there is a knowledge competence gap that exists in this area. And that is where sport and exercise nutrition uh, science uh, comes into to play where you need to understand what it actually is. And that is that it's information, but it still needs to be applied into practice. And as a reminder, despite our emphasis on training adaptation, supporting training adaptation, supporting performance, we must always remember that the number one priority is the health of our client, our athlete. So I always like to look at this as the practitioner's toolbox. This information, this knowledge, um, even tools that can be used to aid your practice, to inform your practice, are just tools in the toolbox. Whether it's uh, high-protein diets, whether it's carbohydrate loading, whether it's a specific type of supplement, uh, a nutrient timing strategy, uh, a specific approach to body composition, these are all these are all components of your, your practitioner's toolbox, knowledge. Um, and they all have a value. And you need to know their strengths and their weaknesses. You know when you need to know when to use them and you need to know when not to use them. So that brings us on to the next sort of key idea here. And that is you need to ask yourselves, are they actually relevant? Is this information relevant? Is it closely connected or appropriate to what is being done or considered? So this is why you need to ask yourself, when looking at all this information, what actually is it that I'm trying to do? Am I, am I trying to uh, help the athlete deal with hydration strategies? Um, am I trying to get them faster on game day? Or am I trying to manipulate a certain training strategy to increase their ability to oxidize or burn fat, if you like? Are we focusing on recovering from Ill, illness or injury? There are many different approaches. And, and when we look at the periodization of an individual's training, indeed, they're trying to do different things with their different training sessions. So different sessions will be different desired outcomes. And so too would, therefore, um, different nutritional approaches 
can help manipulate uh, those desired outcomes. But what we have to understand is that information comes in varying levels and quality, which I will come back to in a minute. But we need to learn how to translate or filter that information. And there's a paper here um, that you can read called um, From Paper to Podium, Quantifying the Translational Potential of Performance Nutrition Research. This helps you, this is a tool, set of tools that helps you understand how to read uh, research papers and actually work out if they're relevant to what it is that you're trying to do. So the reason why I'm mentioning this is because you don't just want to um, be a qualified performance nutritionist or you don't want to be a certified um, nutrition coach. You want to go beyond that because you also want to be an effective practitioner, an effective performance nutritionist. And what that requires is that you have more than just knowledge, more than just certain kinds of um, uh, certificates, for example. We need to understand that there is a process that you have to go through in order to become an effective practitioner, which includes many of the complex things that you can see in my chart here from understanding how to source, um, filter, read, interpret, uh, knowledge, science, evidence, but you also need to learn how to apply that into practice, convert it into meaningful information that your clients can actually understand and will actually be able to apply uh, into what we would call an effective intervention. And a lot of this will boil down to, uh, yes, is it good quality knowledge or information, but also is it actually relevant, in this case, to an athlete? So this is what I like to think of as going beyond evidence-based practice where we would look at this as something called evidence-informed practice. And I'll unwrap what I mean by this in a minute, but there is um, this concept of evidence-based practice, which will talk about um, the use of evidence to justify or support the, uh, the particular approach or the ideas or the or the claims that you're making. But that evidence may not be relevant because, for example, um, it might be based on uh, somebody completely different from your athlete, or it might be based on, a, on an animal study and not on an Olympic athlete. There's a lot for you to think about. And this is um, where we start to introduce the concept of decision-making as an important component to this art of being a good practitioner. Um, the whole concept of critical thinking is, a, is an important area. Excuse me, need a glass of water. <clears throat> so anyway, moving on from that, um, you can see then that I'm talking about what I would refer to as a holistic performance nutrition model where we are combining all of this stuff, the information, the critical thinking, the, the, the factors that you can see in front of me that lead to high-quality practitioner decision-making. And this is particularly important when you're working in uh, performance nutrition because elite athletes can win or lose a medal uh, over absolute minutiae of detail or by split seconds. So we do need to be bearing in mind things like the proactive uh, approaches to their nutrition and their health and wellness, reactive considerations, as I've referred to before, where we might be factoring in illness and injury support, but also predictive. 
not just the game at the end of this week or the event at the end of next month, but perhaps uh, uh, you know six months from now. These are all things that we're trying to factor in when it comes to working with elite athletes because they're not just doing three, four sessions a week, you know, upper body, lower body, you know, back and biceps and so on, which you tend to see in the more recreational fitness environment. When it comes to athletes, they are doing more than just training their body. They're doing more than just burning calories. They're working towards very specific goals. And there's a big consequence to that. So to go back to this idea of, of evidence or evidence-based practice, um, which is key to performance nutrition practice, we have to ask ourselves, what actually is the best available evidence? And you'll be familiar with this hierarchy of evidence that you'll see in various forms that will differentiate um, systematic reviews, randomized control studies as being sort of the best evidence and background information or expert opinion or even case studies as being not so high quality. But that depends. Um, and it depends on the amount of evidence that you're going to collect, and it's going to depend on how you use and interpret that information. And that is why it's important for you to understand that this evidence must be filtered by the practitioner via critical thinking processes in order to arrive at the right result. Now, you may be wondering why I'm, I'm saying that, and there are a variety of, of reasons why this is the case. But when we're looking at research evidence, the bulk of this evidence is derived from generalized data. And that does um, that's important because it does not mean that this information is applicable to all people. And the reason why this is of great interest here is because elite athletes absolutely are not typical people. Whilst there may be many characteristics that are common to the general public, uh, the average person that attends the gym, for example, the elite athlete actually tends to be what we call the outlier, the very different scenario. So applying research that's based on general people or even college students or whatever, can be very different than um, the research that would be derived from elite athletes or Olympic athletes. So to help understand this concept, I love this picture here, which helps to, I think this is a Sports Illustrated image where you can see um, elite athletes. Actually, I think they're Olympic athletes. And you can see they come in all shapes and sizes, literally. Um, and they are highly individual. Um, and yes, they're representing lots of different sports from strength, power, and physique-related sports. But also within the same sport, for example, here in soccer players, you will find tremendous differences that exist even between each and every player. So this is why um, in sport and exercise nutrition practice, you might tend to see or you're likely to see a lot more individualization that goes on. So for example, here you can see in my own clinic, um, at our laboratory at the IOPN, uh, we'll do a variety of uh, uh, field-based tests, some of which you can do yourself, like skinfold testings, height, weight, girth measurements, uh, questionnaires, that sort of thing, uh, information derived from interview, and also laboratory-based tests to really help understand um, what makes these individuals so unique and so different to help us come up with the best possible advice. Um, 
And that's because their priorities um, can be very generalized. They can do what they see in uh, social media. They can see, you know, the advice that's very generalized. But what they tend to need um, is help in understanding what their priorities are, which I've already um, gone into um, in a previous couple of slides. In fact, I'm so obsessed by this topic that this was an area that my uh, doctorate researched in. And what I'm trying to get across to you here is that information gets lost in translation. Um, your idea of low protein might be um, your client's idea of high protein. And so it is in um, written communications, books, uh, social media. There's a lack of information being defined. So when people refer to low protein or high protein, for example, you actually don't typically see the definition of what is high or low protein in the context of what they're meaning to say. So it gets very tricky. And that's why I'm saying that knowing does not equal doing. Now, we have an issue with being a human being in this modern world that we live in, and that is something known as cognitive pitfalls. And the big one that we fall into in the health and fitness industry is this idea of truthiness. The quality of seeming or being felt to be true, even if not necessarily true. So it sounds right, but it's not necessarily right. And we see this all the time uh, when we hear about um, information that's projected on social media. But we can also see truthiness in technical blogs and articles and sometimes in published research. So to help you with this, um, this paper, for example, is worth a read by Professor Louise Burke, Communicating Sports Science in the Age of the Twitter Sphere. And uh, here's a couple of um, paragraphs I wanted to extract for you because I feel that they're so important. And the first bit here is that sports science equals evidence-based knowledge and practice gained from rigorous research and measurement of characteristics of real-life sport with some allowance for personal insights. Sport scienciness equals opinions about sports science, often based on some level of fact, but extrapolated well beyond the available evidence and supported mostly by belief rather than data. So I guess it's important now then that we introduce one of my favorite words, which is context. Um, my other favorite word is relevant, and we'll come to that. But context, the circumstance that, um, that forms the setting for an event statement or idea and in terms of which it can be fully understood. And the reason why this is important, because in performance nutrition in particular, context is critical. What is it that you're actually trying to do? Are you trying to help the body be better at burning fat? Or do you want the body to be better at using uh, carbohydrates? But what we don't want to do is help the body become better at using uh, fat as a fuel at the expense of its ability to use carbohydrate as a fuel. And the example uh, where this comes into play is with an endurance athlete who, yes, has limited supplies of carbohydrate and will use um, a mixture of fuels between fat and carbohydrate to fuel their marathon, for example. But what you don't want them to do, or uh, cycling or whatever it could be, but what you don't want them to do is become so good at using fat that they're not so good at using carbohydrate and therefore they uh, slow down for example, um, and we want them to be good at using carbohydrate because that's what fuels their, their hill sprints, their 
their, their sprint finishes, uh, their power climbs, that sort of thing. Um, you need to ask yourself, what am I actually trying to do with my interventions? So another one of these sort of sciencey areas, these truthiness areas, is the concept of fat burning zones. And you'll see this in the gym. You see this um, on those charts. Uh, and there's some sort of magical fat burning zone. And that's because fat burning sounds, sounds great, doesn't it? I'm burning off all of my fat. Or is it really actually what it um, means to say? What you need to understand about fat burning is that it does not necessarily, and in fact, it, it is unlikely to equal body fat loss. And that is because fat balance actually equals fat intake minus fat oxidation or fat burning. And that's why context is king, because increased fat oxidation during exercise is not the same thing as increased fat oxidation after exercise. And that is not the same thing as a generic maximal fat burning zone, because the variation between people's ability to burn fat can be 18 to 88% of one's VO2 max. So it is an enormous amount of variety that exists between individuals. And then that brings us to my favorite topic, perhaps, which is this idea of fat burners, these supplements that are marketed for weight loss. And there is a word of caution here, because although um, there have been studies that will suggest that they might... Um, result in an acute fat oxidation increase of around 10%. That sounds convincing, doesn't it? But what that actually equates to is about 500 calorie, sorry, within a 500 calorie workout, the amount of energy expended is an extra 50 calories. That's all that would do. It's just on top of a, uh, or within a 500 calorie workout, your fat burner before your exercise sessions might get you to increase another 50 calories. Downside is the compensatory mechanisms that occurs after that, i.e. the metabolism may actually slow down a bit, or you're actually going to eat more to compensate after it, which may negate the um, any potential benefit from those fat burners. And one could argue you're going to burn more, more fat just walking to the shops to buy your, your fat burners than you would ever get from the fat burner supplement. So... This reminds us then that translating knowledge into success needs to be mindful of the fact that science, um, there's a gap between science and practice. There's a gap between knowing and doing. There's a gap between an idea, a plan, success. And there's a gap absolutely between what's written on a label or written in an article and what actually happens. And that's why we need to be mindful of this knowledge competence gap because it matters a great deal to athletes. You can't just get this wrong because getting it wrong will result in them losing goals, not getting their medals, not achieving the results. And that is the heightened level of requirement for you as a performance nutrition uh, coach or nutritionist. So to bring us back to context just quickly, um, it's a bit like apples and oranges. They're both fruit, but there are fundamental differences which may or may not be relevant depending on the context. Uh, and by that, I'll illustrate it by saying that fruit juice is not necessarily orange juice. Well, it definitely isn't, of course. And an athlete is not necessarily an elite athlete. An increased fat oxidation, therefore, does not necessarily lead to increased fat loss. So that is why you need to be aware of the context. So that brings me on to 
my new favorite word, which is relevant. What does relevant mean? Well, it's closely, is it closely connected or appropriate to what is being done or considered? You can do something, but should you? I can do this strategy. I could take the supplement. I could do this dietary intervention, but is it actually relevant to what we're trying to achieve with my uh, athletes training or performance goals? Therefore, it's important that you get your priorities right. Don't put the cart before the horse as it comes to what you're doing. And that is because if you remember back to my, my chart earlier about being a great performance nutritionist, the key to that is being effective. You're not being hired for being okay or adequate. You need to be effective in the same way that your athlete wants to be the most successful athlete they can be they want to win medals they want to do well it all relates to this concept of being effective and what does effective mean well successful in producing a desired or intended result athletes are also after success you want successful outcomes the athlete wants a successful result in their uh, competitions their, their their training so what does success mean well ultimately it is the accomplishment of an of an aim or a purpose. So it all makes sense when you start to consider what are the requirements to be an effective performance nutritionist. And you'll see that there's more stakes at play um, than there is in working with the general population, generally speaking. So I talked already about evidence-based practice. Um, and I guess the main thing that you need to understand here is that it's very much a case of integrating the best available research evidence with clinical expertise. So you're combining the best possible knowledge with expertise. And that is what you're trying to do as a performance nutritionist. And I think it's best summed up here by Professor Asker Yukendrup as evidence-based practice is an approach that is the conscious, conscientious use of current best evidence in making decisions about nutrition to support the performance and health of individual athletes and teams. So let's just quickly go back to the word that we've been using here, evidence. Evidence is the available body or, um, sorry, the available body of facts or information indicating whether a belief or proposition is true or valid, okay? Or to show evidence of, it's a fact. But when we talk about evidence-based practice, or even better still, evidence-informed practice, what we're really looking for is the best available evidence. Is it relevant? It might You might be able to differentiate it from being good evidence or bad evidence, but is it relevant? That's the main thing that we're trying to allude to. And to remind you, the evidence that you're looking at may be great. It may be high quality science, but it may not be relevant to your athlete, your elite athlete. It may be based on um, cyclists, but not necessarily on triathletes who may do some cycling in their event, but that's more than just cycling. Therefore, the, 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 the evidence that relates to just cyclists may not be completely translatable or your college athlete is not an elite athlete, as I've already pointed out. You have to think about this information. So oftentimes we're working on an N of one basis with individuals. And as you know, they come in different shapes, different sizes, and they have different goals. And that is why as a performance nutritionist, we need to learn to contextualize this knowledge, individualize what we're doing 
to personalize and customize our um, approaches. So I'm going to rush through a couple of sections here because I'm going to run out of time if I'm not careful. But here you can see is a, a hierarchy of knowledge where we learn to individualize and contextualize knowledge. I won't spend time on that for fear of running out of time. We also need to bear in mind that knowledge might well be published, but it might also be very out of date. But not all um, studies that were done many years ago are irrelevant. It may also relate to the quality of the study and uh, the position it has in the overall body of knowledge. You just need to bear in mind there might well be a gap between the time um, or the perspective from which that study or that science, that knowledge came from, and all that can be known about a topic. So you just need to be aware of that. You also need to be aware, uh, throwing a bit of uh, uh, quantum physics at you here with deterministic chaos, but you just need to bear in mind that even just a slight deviation from, uh, from, the, tr from the accuracy of your information can be a problem. And as Aristotle put it, the least initial deviation from the truth is multiplied later a thousandfold. This simply means if you're just a little bit off with your information being a little bit inaccurate or your, you know, your measurements, uh, body composition or whatever is slightly off, over the long term, that has the potential to result in a miss rather than a hit. Um, so deviation is the action of departing from an established course or accepted standard. And that is critical in this type of situation. And that's because information can be pretty misleading if you don't understand the context or if you do not understand the sources of error. Like you can see here, when we talk about energy balance, there are many factors that influence negatively energy in and energy out, things like inaccuracy of diet recalls, the interpretation of that data, uh, all the way to the massive daily variations in resting energy expenditure that exists between um, individuals. And um, I'm going to skip through uh, that section there. Um, and with energy balance, there are huge variations that exist between individuals. And you'll see this multiplied a significant amount with elite athletes where uh, depending on the type of athlete, whether there could be an ultra endurance athlete down to a soccer player, um, there will be vast differences in the amount of energy they expend, but also their genetic profiles, their psychological states, their, their training, their availability and selection of, of macronutrients. Um, it really helps to uh, for us to contextualize these factors so that we can differentiate um, the decontextualized from the contextualized approaches to knowledge and science, like in this case, energy balance. And this is where, for example, in my setting, using testing can be useful. We can actually see, you know, uh, predictions, which is like this um, resting metabolic rate assessment on an athlete. Um, you can see here is quite a bit different from the actual measured uh, level, which goes back to this point that uh, people do vary, but athletes tend to vary even more. Also, the accuracy of the tools that you use for testing things like body composition. There are many different gadgets and laboratory tools out there that vary widely, and you just need to be wary of the inaccuracies that can um, exist in that regard. Uh, and I've done podcasts on all of this, and um, body composition uh, 
uh, like Skimfolds uh, make some assumptions um, about the perfect makeup of every arm in theory, um, that there are uh, uh, perfectly uh, circular perimeters around the arm, but of course there aren't, and it will depend on levels of fat and how much muscle and where you measured and all sorts of things. You start factoring that into your Excel spreadsheets and so on to determine body fat percentages and so on. It can be pretty pretty misleading uh, when you're not aware of all of the uh, potential sources of error there. So let me skip through um, a lot of this. We talked a lot about the tools in your toolbox. We've talked about um, translating knowledge into success. There's a lot of information to throw at you. In this last 20 minutes or so, what I want to do is focus um, away from the science and more into practice. Let's show you what this looks like um, in reality. So here we have an applied performance nutrition science to practice case study. Now, there are loads of case studies that exist. Uh, I could choose from thousands. Um, but in this case, I'm interested in soccer, football, um, uh, particularly elite uh, international level uh, soccer, an area that I've worked a lot in. And we have a case study here that um, is a common one that occurs in performance nutrition. And here we're dealing with um, athletes um, who tend to get sick and ill. Now, your scope of practice might not be to treat illness or injury, but when it comes to athletes, um, their high levels of training and other factors I'm going to get into can lead to illness and injury, which can be the consequence of not getting things right as it relates to um, their nutritional advice. So hopefully this will help to unravel some aspects of that for you. And this is actually based on a case study that I've co-authored um, and my team here, you can see um, here, and you can uh, get hold of this uh, paper pretty easily or from my research gate or just contact me. Um, um, is what this uh, study is actually based upon. So let's give you some, some background. So we're not talking about science or theory now. We're talking about a real-world situation. And what we've got is a professional uh, football player. Um, and in the English Premier League, professional football players train around four times um, a week and they engage in one to two games per week. This equates to around 150 training sessions and up to 50 games per season. And there is also regular national and international travel plus media attention. And as a result of this, football players are placed under huge amounts of physiological and psychological stress. And this stress uh, increases the risk of illness and infection. And this can have many negative effects. This can include reduced uh, athlete health and well-being. This can reduce the likelihood that the player is available for training and competition. This also reduces the players and the team's performance. This also can lead to the increased um, risk of illness and infection amongst other players and staff. And of course, this is topical in these uh, pandemic times. So this case study that I'm going to take you through offers a real-world applied example for other players and practitioners seeking to deploy nutrition and lifestyle strategies to reduce the risk of illness and maximize player availability for training and competition. So our athlete then. So let's 
let's look into who this person is. So there are 25-year-old male uh, elite football player who plays for the England team and also for um, uh, one of the top teams in the UK. This player is, however, illness-prone, and they were found to have, um, or they were reporting, three upper respiratory tract infections over three months prior to our nutritional intervention. And this resulted in him missing three uh, games and two weeks of training, which is serious stuff, um, as you might imagine, for professional um, uh, football players. And you, can, you could look at this as professional baseball player, professional basketball player, professional American football player. Uh, this, this translates across to many kinds of team, team sports or even individual sports. Um, so what were the baseline assessments? Well, we looked at this athlete's daily diet. We did their body composition using uh, skin folds, using the Isaac methodology. We did some salivary uh, immune markers, uh, uh, secretory IgA in particular. We did some blood work to do a full blood count and look at a variety of factors there. And we also monitored uh, sleep. So what were the red flags? What, 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 what stood out from all this information? Well, the first thing we found was that this athlete was skipping breakfast and followed a low-carb diet, which equaled uh, low energy availability. They didn't consume any carbs during or after exercise, uh, and they averaged about four hours of sleep per night. And um, the blood work showed, amongst other things, that their vitamin D levels were um, a little bit low for an athlete. Not too bad for a sedentary person, but, but definitely not where we want it to be uh, for an athlete. Now, this made us think, you know, what on earth is going on here? We've got a professional soccer player. Uh, you know, they're, they're not eating right. Um, there's some problems here, absolutely. But what's motivating them to, to eat this way? Well, of course, what we found was that a lot of this was motivated by the fact that the athlete wanted to look great. And, of course, um, in soccer, professional soccer, for example, it's not uncommon for uh, some vanity to be there. Players like to look good with their shirts off. And you can imagine this is not going to be just athletes. This is people at the gym are um, potentially at risk of this too if they have high training volumes. Um, so the athlete was um, following dietary approaches that was not recommended by the team sport nutritionist, but was stuff that they were reading on social media, what their friends and buddies were doing, the myths, the, the truthiness, if you like, the sciencey stuff. Um, the problem is this player was an athlete and this is performance nutrition, not aesthetic nutrition. And what we need is for the player to be functional. And what does functional mean? Designed to be practical, practical and useful rather than just attractive. So how did we deal with this? What was our approach to solve this problem? So over a 12-week intervention, our number one goal was to achieve player and staff buy-in. We wanted them to actually believe in what we were doing so that they would want to do it. So we taught them the, the whys and the hows so they understood why and how they needed to do this. And fundamental to this was explaining why we were advising what we were and how this would actually benefit the player. 
We set a diet plan, which, by the way, we implemented in conjunction with the club chef. The club chef in a team setting is so important because you might know everything there is to know about sports nutrition, but the chef is the one that knows how to actually get their athletes to like and want and actually eat the food, make it tasty. So the specifics of the, the diet plan was a varied diet, plenty of fruit and veg, no macronutrients were neglected, i.e. they did not cut out carbs because we helped them understand how important they were. Breakfast each morning was prioritized and carbs during exercise uh, were given. Recovery shakes, uh, which were a carbohydrate and protein combination, were given immediately post-exercise. And they were also given pre-sleep protein. But we made sure that the um, energy balance, the calorie levels was bang on so they could still have that amazing physique that they had, but so that they were also functional. So we also considered supplements and we based this on uh, recommendations that was available in the literature at the time. Uh, here you can see in Professor Neil Walsh's uh, paper when we did the study, we chose uh, vitamin D because of the blood testing results and also quercetin and probiotics. Um, the player did not want to take a lot of supplements, but these ones we felt were useful. And because he was an elite athlete, um, we made sure that they were tested for banned substances. We also did uh, look at what's called um, hygiene and uh, sleep strategies. Um, and that's things like washing of hands, um, things that you absolutely are familiar post-COVID, but before COVID was an issue, you may not have thought about some of these things like hand gels, um, also coughing into your elbow, not onto your hand. Um, minimizing social media usage and caffeine for obvious reasons uh, based on the previous test results, definitely not sharing bottles and getting more sleep were all the things that we focused on with this athlete. We also ensured weekly consultations with the player. This is critical because you can't just give someone some dietary advice and expect them to follow. You have to keep meeting with them, talk to them, hear their issues and problems and help make sure um, that you are assessing their compliance, you're understanding them, they're understanding you, uh, you're answering their questions, and you're refining your approach where appropriate. So what were the results from all, all this work? Well, they had excellent compliance, and the player reported uh, that they understood what they were doing, and they understood why and how and so forth. Their vitamin D uh, levels were found in their, um, in their next blood test to have improved, um, which was great. Their salivary uh, IgA levels were improving and their sleep had improved from uh, four hours at baseline to seven hours, um, a massive improvement by week 12. And ultimately, what we saw was the upper respiratory tract infection symptoms uh, had declined significantly, which is a big win. And overall, the player competed in all the training sessions and matches over a three-month period, and the player maintained fitness um, and their place in the team and contributed significantly to the team's success, um, which is all in all a successful outcome. So anyway, you can read about that case study um, uh, there. Just look it up or, or ask me for it. Um, and the, this whole idea of athlete immune health you can read about, which is something that you approach not from a therapeutic perspective. This is about getting it right in the first place, helps to prevent these problems from occurring. But this is why in performance nutrition, you need to understand 
things like the energy needs of your athlete, the concept of energy availability, um, and the consequences of not getting things right um, by not understanding um, what it is you're trying to do are all important. And I've got a bunch of podcasts that you can listen to on these um, topics. So that was a lot of information that we've gone through today. We've covered sort of an overall introduction to performance nutrition. We've looked at an overview of some of the key considerations for sport and exercise nutritionists, for performance nutritionists. And we've actually had a look at what it looks like to work with a real-life uh, elite athlete uh, from this particularly interesting perspective of reducing um, illness and infection incidents uh, by getting everything right in terms of the basics that I referred to in the performance nutrition overview. Um, and I uh, just wanted to say thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you've benefited from what I've had to say today. I've only scratched the surface. There's huge amounts to learn about. You'll all have stuff you're interested in that that um, I won't have been able to cover, but hopefully I've piqued your interest in this, this sort of more niche area of uh, sports nutrition, this performance nutrition angle. And uh, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone on my team at the Institute of Performance Nutrition. Um, and if you want to follow what we're doing, please check, our, check out our website at theiopn.com, our social media accounts, and please do email me if you'd like to know anything or um, get copies of those papers, I would be very willing to send them to you. So uh, thank you to you and thank you to the NASM for enabling me to speak here today. Take care.